three, two, one, boom. Hello, Colin. Welcome back. What's up, man? Good you to see you. You wrote a book? I brought a book. I wrote, wrote a book. Wrote I wrote this book last time since I saw you last. The Impossible First? Indeed, indeed. Yeah, about my uh, solo journey across Antarctica and kind of diving deep through my whole life and kind of what brought me there and other expeditions and the ups and downs of it all. And you're coming back from another crazy trip, right? What, I am indeed. What is that nonsense that you did on a kayak? <laughs> <laughs> what did you do? So uh, after I got back from the Impossible First, the Antarctica Crossing, right about the time I saw you last year, um, I got a, a, a funny phone call, actually, of all things. People were asking me, you know, what's the next expedition going to be? What are you going to do? And I said, you know, I just walked 54 days by myself across Antarctica. Give me, give me a minute. Give me a minute to uh, right. relax. And uh, I get a phone call via a buddy of mine from college, connects me to this... Uh, this guy, uh, this Icelandic guy, I've never met him before. His name's Fionn Paul. Don't know his story. I do now. He's an absolute legend. Um, and he says, hey, man, you were just in Antarctica, right? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I think we should go back to Antarctica. And I was like, all right. Well, what are you thinking? He's like, in a rowboat. I think we should row a boat from the southern tip of South America to the peninsula of Antarctica across Drake Passage. How far is that? About 700 miles. Can I see what that looks like on a map? <laughs> um, and I said... Please delete my phone number. <laughs> 700 miles rowing a boat. Uh, yeah, so Drake Passage is known to be, um, you know, in seafaring, one of the most treacherous, if not the most treacherous kind of passageway in the world. You know, you've got you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific and the Southern Ocean kind of all converging between the Antarctic Peninsula and the southern tip of South America. So you've got 40-foot swells. You've got, you know, crazy waves, icebergs as you get close to Antarctica. Um, and the uh, the mission or the goal was to see if we could uh, – there it is That's right it? there. That's it. That, that whole area? That whole area, from yeah, there right to there. there. From there to there, um, all the way down. Yeah, the main the main peninsula there, of Antarctica. How long did this take? So ultimately, uh, it took us uh, just less than two weeks to do the entire row. But it was a, a long journey in the planning from that phone call all the way through to that year. But it was a uh, it was a two week or 12, 12 day crossing. So in the two weeks, you had to have two weeks worth of food, two weeks worth of drinking water, all uh, on the boat. Yeah, so, well, water, actually, we have a desalinator, so off of, um, really? off of uh, solar panels, everything's, you know, solar, there's no, you know, engine, no sail, nothing like that, it's just completely human-powered rowing. We have a portable desalinator? Yeah. How big is it? Um, it fits inside one of the tiny, so the boat's tiny, the boat's like 20, right. 25 feet long, three guys rowing at a time, so there's six of us total in the team, ultimately, um, you know, barely anywhere to sleep in this tiny little compartments like the size of like, you know, sleeping in the back of a, you know, hatchback of a Honda Civic or something right. like that. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so you've got this desalinator that's basically kind of in one of the central compartments. So it's probably like, I don't know, maybe two feet by two feet square, something like that. Um, and I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make water real fast. You can make 10 liters of water in like, you know, an hour or two, depending on this, how, how That's hot the sun is. Good. But, but it, I mean, it gets it done. Yeah, it gets it done. Does it taste like whale dicks? <laughs> like, what, is, what does the water taste like? It was weird. As we got closer to Antarctica, I think it started messing up because it got real salty. Like it wasn't doing quite as good of a job. The water oh, near no. Antarctica was like one degree Celsius, so 33 Fahrenheit, I mean, practically frozen cold water. And I think that was kind of starting to tweak out the system. Um, but, so you're uh, drinking salt water. As we got closer, it was like, it was still potable, but it was like, this isn't working as well. But early on, I mean, it worked just fine. Like it was pretty much, you know, cold, cold drinking water. Like bottled water. Yeah, wow. exactly. But I, then- 
How could, does it only do it for a certain amount of time? Does the filter get filled up or anything? Um, it worked for the entire uh, 12 days that we were out there. There's guys who have gone on longer, you know, rowing expeditions across the Pacific or the Atlantic or longer stretches of ocean um, that, you know, works the entire time. Um, but it is one of the things that breaks down. So we had extra spare parts. Fortunately, we didn't have to use any of that. But, uh, but yeah, no, it, uh, it worked. And then, yeah, of course, we had to bring food for the entire time as well um, on, on there. So that was, you know, a key part of it. How much food? So there were six of us, like I said. Um, pretty much all the compartments were full. Um, you know, there was some tiny little compartments, but we basically ate two things. So we uh, we had freeze dried meals, so like Mountain House freeze dried meals. Uh, we had this little jet boil that we were kind of as crazy as the waters, like it's forty, you know, forty foot waves were bouncing around on this, trying to hold a jet boil to try to boil some water. It was pretty tough, but um, some close calls with that. But we also um, had these bars. So last time, I think we talked about last time I was on here, I had these uh, kind of custom nutrition bars yeah. uh, that that were made. Um, and so that worked really well for me in the Antarctica crossing. We had done all this kind of Could blood you work. Explain that again, like how you made, how those made. Yeah. So, um, when I was doing my Antarctica crossing, one of the kind of challenges is basically, can you take enough food with you? Cause what I was doing was called unsupported. So no resupplies of food or fuel, you know, crossing the landmass of Antarctica 54 days. And so I wanted to get like the most optimized nutrition. Um, and so I work with this company called Standard Process, who's all like a whole food supplement company. And they've got all these sort of doctors, um, food scientists and this. And I went in their lab for a year and they did all this kind of custom blood work on my body, um, trying to figure out, you know, basically my exact sort of uh, physiology. And they created these bars based on all of the research that they did um, that basically were these really high calorie bars because it was the most high calories that I needed to optimize space. Um, and they were kind of, they were all, they're all plant-based and ended up, and then I know there's- you know, What's in them again? You know, coconut oil, nuts, seeds, you know, sort of uh, different phytonutrients and a particular macronutrient blend that I needed. It was about 45% fat because I needed the high fat, um, about 40% protein, um, and then 15, what's the math on that? (laughs) Uh, 15% uh, carbs. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, excuse me, sorry, I I alternated the protein carb quotient there. But but yeah, it worked really well for that. And so when I was doing the row, I called up Standard Process again. They've been an amazing partner of mine. They were like, like, hey, I'm doing this row. Um, Those bars worked so good last time. And like I just said, with, you know, trying to boil water and, you know, all this stuff is really challenging on the rowboat, the best would be to have this really kind of high optimized nutrition that we could use again for a project like this. But the parameters are different. You know, the humidity is different. The temperature is different. There's six of us now. There's not just one of me. You know, can we optimize it for that? So they kind of made a specialty blend um, of the bars again um, that they've called the column bars. They could probably come up with a better name. <laughs> um, but uh, it can worked really well. people buy those online anywhere? They're, they're not for sale. No. Um, we've, we've talked about uh, doing that. So maybe in the future, but uh, you, can, you can see online on their website, like all the different supplements and stuff that went into it so you can kind of buy the component parts but yeah one day we might we might make them but they've been kind of just custom for these two projects but they worked really really well particularly in the rowing so i mean they worked amazing in the antarctic crossing as well but in the rowing it was 90 minutes of rowing on 90 minutes of rowing off continuous 24 hours a day so there's we're kind of in two sets of three six of us total mm. three people rowing three people resting and in that 90 minutes that you're off that's also when you gotta you know eat drink sleep it's your only time to rest basically and so as much time as you can kind of optimize eating and stuff meant more sleeping and so to have these bars get done with a 90 minute rowing shift be able to eat you know a thousand calorie bar highest you know quality nutrition in your body um i mean standard process nailed it again it was amazing to you know have these bars and have it work really well for all of us to kind of optimize not just the food but also the efficiency of sleep because the sleep got fucking crazy out there like i can imagine yeah yeah so you're you're basically sleeping every 90 minutes for you know 
one hour or so yeah exactly ish like if you can get it and like when once the swells start cranking up like you're in this tiny compartment like i don't know if we can pull up a picture of the boat for a visual or some on my instagram is it covered at all um not covered like really not covered at all like so well there's covered in the tiny compartment so the rowing part's not covered at all so when you're rowing waves are splashing up like over top of you i mean you're getting completely soaked like you're getting you know completely soaked the entire time and then the tiny compartment you know it's like it's like lower than this table like you'd be like kind of crouched down like in mm. there um yeah this, so right that, this is the rowboat right here so that's us so that's the floor is that where all the food is stored underneath yeah you? underneath there's compartments so you can see that tiny little kind of compartment on mm-hmm. either side one smaller and one's bigger the and that's back where you one, guys would sleep that's where we'd sleep well the there's, bigger one that's the waves it's hard like to believe that there's 12 people three pe- thing. no six people Six oh, excuse people. me, six people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But still, um, so you got you know three people in the three people rowing and three people in the compartments at any time. I think if you kind of scroll up to the top, maybe there's one of just that shows like the whole boat um, or like what it looks like. Maybe there, there's a, kind of a shot of it. Um, so yeah, so you can huh. see in there. Like the back little compartment, that's where I was. Um, then I was alternating with this guy, Fion, who I mentioned, the Icelandic guy who was the captain of the boat, really experienced ocean rower. Um, and uh, we alternated inside this little cabin. And then the other four guys, they alternated two people because that one's a little bit bigger in the front. That's the bow cabin in the front. Um, but they're like, you're like head to toe in there or you're crouched into a little ball. It's not, it's not glamorous at all. And did you know and these guys at all before you did this? So uh, not really. Uh, not really. Uh, yeah, it was uh, a deep dive into the team. And after doing something solo, I was pretty excited to do something, you know, as a team and doing something in a completely, you know, exploring a completely different kind of avenue um, of exploration in the ocean, something I'd never done before. And I had actually, not only did I not know these guys, um, a couple of them I went to college with, but we like really loosely knew each other. Like I kind of like maybe like, oh, recognized their face a little bit, but it didn't, we weren't like good friends or anything like that. Three of them I'd never met in my entire life. Um, and I had also have never rode a boat in my life ever before um and so when fion uh he called me up and told me about the project he's one of the most world's most renowned ocean rowers he's got you know 30 world records or something like that um complete legend he's rowed boats across every single ocean this was like the kind of the last you know big ocean that he'd never crossed no one you know no one ever done it just like this before and so he kind of said, hey, I wanted this idea, but the logistics are super complicated. Like going to Antarctica is all this sort of like treaties that you need, all this paperwork, getting a boat down to South America, importing it through the Panama Canal, et cetera. I mean, it's like a tough thing. And he'd been like kind of thinking about it for a year or so. And he, he said like, hey, I've seen you pull off some big projects together. Can we kind of team up? And I know, you know, your team has got really good at figuring out these logistics. Would you be interested? And I'd actually looked at ocean rowing um, a couple years ago as something that I was wanted to do one day. And so it was kind of a, after I kind of got that first phone call like i said like kind of like dude i just got back from antarctica i don't want to go back there like tomorrow uh but you know of course the curiosity inside of me got the best of me and i called him back up and i said hey let's do this what are you thinking and kind of dove into it um from there kind of my my team kind of wrapped our arms around the sort of like logistic and building out the project and he was definitely the visionary of um something he dreamed up and it was super cool to team up uh, with him after doing something alone now this thing that you did when you walked across antarctica um very impressive, incredible, but I'm sure you've seen the National Geographic article that they wrote about yes. you, and they said that there was another man from was it Norway that had done it already. That yes, it wasn't the first time someone had gone across Antarctica. Yeah, he had gone actually a further distance. Yeah. 
So something I've been talking about super openly, including in my book, which is uh, the Net Geo article. You know, it's a little bit unfortunate. Um, I actually just published a uh, 16-page letter um, um, asking Net Geo to retract the entire article. And the reason it's 16 pages is, unfortunately, the entire article they wrote is just so riddled with inaccuracies and kind of misrepresentations and omissions um, that, you know, we had to kind of ask them, say, hey, look, you know, you kind of got this wrong. I was never properly interviewed for it. But one of the things, you're talking about this guy, Borg Auslan this Norwegian guy absolute freaking legend so what this guy did um, in 1996 so you know 20 some years before that I attempted my crossing is he crossed Antarctica um, from the edge of the coastline across the ice shelf all the way across the landmass across the other ice shelf um, roughly 1800 miles and what he used to propel himself was he used a kite um, for a good portion of the time and it's an absolute extraordinary project and what's really weird about sort of this National Geographic article a number of senses is one of the premises of it was saying you know Colin never talked about Borg Ausland like he never talked about him in his book he never mentioned him he never this and in my book <laughs> what's really bizarre and why we're asking for a retraction because it's just really in, ineffectual is that, you know, here I am on page 49 of my book. Literally, it says, the Norwegian adventurer Borga Auslan in many ways defined the terrain of astonishing modern Antarctic feats, becoming the first person to cross Antarctica solo when he traveled 1,800 miles in 63 days from 1996 to 1997. Not only did he cross the entire landmass of Antarctica, but he also crossed the full Ron and Ross ice shelves from the ocean's edge. Auslan's expedition has deeply inspired me and was unsupported and he hauled all of his food and fuels with no resupplies. So it was weird. It's like the journalist like wrote this article but Without didn't read my book. book. That's not surprising. Um, and I had done, I don't know, a lot of, there's a lot of speculation. Um, I had did this big project and the film project around the row was with Discovery. I don't know if Nat Geo is coming at Discovery or whatever, but it, it's, it's really bizarre. I mean, we could talk about all the different kind of fine points of that, but the big distinction and like, I'll say it, I've said it, shout out from the route, rooftops, but I'll say it here again. Borga Ausland is absolutely incredible. Like I am in awe of the guy. What he did in 96 is phenomenal. That's why I write about it in my book. That's why I've written about it on my social. The day after I finished my crossing, I wrote about it on there as well. And I said, wow, so many people have inspired me. I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. The only way I was able to do this. Right. But this says impossible first, right? So he did it first. Right. So the difference is, is there's kind of two really specific distinctions in the world of polar travel. There's okay. unsupported, which means not using, um, not using, uh, not getting, sorry, not getting resupplied with food or fuel, like I was talking about mm-hmm. with the food. And then there's unassisted, which means not using anything to propel you other than your own body. So that's mm-hmm. called human powered alone. So what he did is considered assisted um, in that he used a kite, but he was able to go twice the distance of me, which is amazing. So he and crossed. How often did he use the kite? Because what I'd read that he had only used the kite in a few instances where the wind was right. Right. So that's another one of the things that the National Geographic article um, unfortunately got wrong. And in my 16-page uh, letter that anyone can read, it's on my website, colinobrady.com slash blog, letter to Nat Geo, or it's linked to my Instagram. Um, it's not like a he said, he said thing where I'm like, oh, hey, right. this got wrong. It's just actually a really kind of documented and sourced document that has links to everything. Um, and one of the links it shows is actually his entire kind of project afterwards 
afterwards in the aftermath of him talking about it, including talking about um, with Parawing, which was the one of his sponsors, the guys who actually built and manufactured the kite. And they're talking about how he used it for about at least a third of his journey, six, 600 or so miles, um, as well as, you know, he was able to use the kite going 125 miles in a single day, um, which is, like I said, it's amazing. It's really incredible what he did in the time that he did it. It's just really kind of an apples and oranges um, comparison when it comes to polar travel and the distinctions uh, of that. Um, so he traveled of- further, but he used some assistance. Yeah. So there's basically these different distinctions in the world of polar travel. Mm-hmm. And that's another one of the things, again, um, I'm not sure how they got this wrong. I, uh, and in the link on the 16 page thing, I show the text message when the journalist asked me, well, tell me about these definitions of unsupported and unassisted. Um, and I sent him the link and there's these links. It's, it's kind of published thing on this website called Antarctica Logistics um, and Expeditions, the main sort of expedition um, facilitator, the person who like runs logistics down there. And it's very clear. Unsupported means no use of resupplies. Right. Unassisted means no use of kites or dogs. And so the thing that I did solo um, that people, I guess, have gotten somewhat confused about or th- at first was I was the first person to cross the landmass of Antarctica solo unsupported, no resupplies, and unassisted, no kites. What Borga Auslan did is he was the first person to cross Antarctica, not just the landmass, but also the ice shelves. So there's frozen ocean on these ice shelves. Um, So from the coast, across the ice shelf, across the landmass, and across the other ice shelf. And no one yet, including myself, has ever done a solo, unsupported, unassisted crossing of both the landmass and the ice shelves. I hope someone does it, man. It would be amazing. I had 375-pound sled, and I almost ran out of food at the end crossing the landmass. Um, and uh, if uh, you'd need maybe a 600-pound sled or something like that, or maybe a more optimized food solution that no one's thought of yet, but um, hasn't been done yet. How big was Ausland's sled? Similar size to me. So he was out there for, um, I think he was out there for 63 days, but roughly. I was out there for 54 days. So we were not out there a lot different in duration of oh, time. okay. So the sled really did make a big difference that if he's going that much further than you. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. That, so... so- so, so one more time, you were out there how many days? I was out there 54 days. And he was out there 60? 63 days. Okay, that's not that different. Right. And so he, like I said, on a, some of the days he talks about it openly that he went, he does it in kilometers, but if you calculate back to miles, like 125 miles in a 15-hour period of time. That's unfathomable just walking, pulling a sled. They're just two different things. It's like the difference between sailing across an ocean and rowing a boat across the ocean. Why do you think National Geographic got that wrong then? Because the way they wrote it, it was, you know, it's... They made it look like you're just a fame whore and that, you know, there was a bunch of other explorers and outdoors people that were in support of the fact that Ausland was the only one, the first one to do it. They didn't make this distinction. And they actually made it seem like as if the sled was an ingenious solution. But it seems like that was a planned thing and that was an engineered thing. And that it wasn't something that he built up on the fly. This was the method that they used to help him get across the snow. Totally. And if, like I said, if you look in the pet letter that I wrote, it's got links to the, actually the manufacturer. They kind of talk about it as being this elegant solution. It's like you put a kite up randomly. Figured it out. Hey, I got an idea. Yeah, but it's like a fully manufactured thing. It's a legit kite. And like I said... This is not me knocking on that. I actually think that project, it's one of the projects that inspired me the most to do what I did. It is amazing. It sounds amazing. Um, Can we see what Ausland, is there, is there any photograph of uh, Ausland's kite? I want to see what it looks like. Yeah. yeah um, it's, whenever someone does something extraordinary, like there's no doubt 
just what you did. 50, how many days again? 54 50, days, days alone. It's fucking crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And for anybody to shit on that is nuts. So, and you're the first one that's ever done it just pulling that thing. And you showed us what it was like last time you were here. Totally. And some of the areas where you had to pull it, it seems like an insane physical undertaking totally i mean so yeah it was uh it it definitely tested me to the edges of my potential there was many times um that it felt impossible i think we talked about it last time but the second chapter of my book is called frozen tears because on the first hour trying to pull my sled 375 pounds fully loaded of food and fuel i started crying like i literally started crying the tears are freezing in my face it's an all-time pathetic feeling i mean it was really really brutal and really challenging and one of the things for sure in the national geographic article they're not they're not disputing that i did this it's not like they're saying you didn't walk 932 miles by yourself across antarctica they kind Um, of like grudgingly gave you credit for doing something really freaky yeah they also didn't mention the difference between the time it took you to travel that and the time it took Auslan to travel a far greater distance yeah. or that he used that kite to go more than 100 miles in a day. Yeah. Those are pretty big, important things. Totally. And I think that, yeah, uh, hopefully you can pull up a, a picture of the Auslan cut with the Same kite. Thing, um, it, uh, it's, it's linked in there. Not finding his specifically. I'm finding kites there, yeah. but not with like, him. Yeah, if it's there out there, Jamie will find it. Yeah, we'll find it in a second. But, you know, it's, uh, like I said, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, you know, I wrote this letter. The editor of National Geographic actually responded and said they're reviewing it. You know, I think they're going to hopefully do the right thing. The facts are pretty clear on this one. Well, hopefully but, we can pressure them by just yeah. explaining it here. Here it, it is. Be, Here's yeah. this. Okay. Yeah, that's a big difference. <laughs> that's a big-ass fucking kite. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm sure that has a lot of power behind it, too. And I, I bet that really helped him. Totally. And it you looked- can ski with those things. Like, the, the fact that he's got skis on and he's getting pulled by that kite, I mean, you're gliding. Yeah. You're not yeah. propelling yourself. They're both really cool things. Hold on, They're go just back different. to that, Jamie. Go back to that. Look, he doesn't have poles in his hands. No, he's just holding on to the kite being pulled along by it. Yeah. So he's probably strapped to that kite. Yeah, it's like if you imagine like a just, kite board, like a yeah. kite boarding on the water or something So he's like probably that. strapped at the waist. He's holding on to that, that kite, but it's pulling him while he's on skis. Yes. Whereas what you did was pull with trekking poles. Yeah, right? I had trekking poles and yeah. uh, you know cross-country skis with skins, but just yes. to give me traction so I didn't sink too deep in the snow. But I'm just walking, basically, just right. pulling it with my own body fully. He's not doing that. It's a different thing. They're and just I'm two sure, different things. I'm sure there was times where he had to walk, right? Yeah, yeah. He manhauled for parts of it as well, like a significant distance, but a lot of it, when the wind was with him, you know, he put up his kite and pulled along. And The it's, fact that he was able to go more than 100 miles in a day makes me go, wait a minute, what? Yeah. Come on, that's a different thing. Totally different thing. That's a different thing. National Geographic did not recognize that, that that's a different thing, that he can go on the snow pulling 300 pounds more than 100 miles. How how many? He went 125 in one time in 15 hours. fucking ridiculous. Yeah. (laughs) That's a totally different thing. Completely. Completely. National Geographic. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, they should should have been really clear about that. Because they were trying to make it out like some elegant solution that he occasionally used, not big deal, but what he really did was amazing. What he did was fucking amazing. There's no No doubt about it. No doubt. That, what we just saw in that image of him getting pulled by that giant ass fucking kite on skis, strapped to this harness with all the weight behind him also being pulled by that giant ass kite, that's a different thing. 124 miles in a day pulling 300 plus pounds get the fuck out of here <laughs> yeah it's hard to walk 124 miles <laughs> yeah. in a day let alone you know? with nothing on your back you know, zach bitter 
who holds the American world record for the fastest 24 hours ever run, ran it full clip in 11 hours. He ran 100 miles. Wow. So 124 miles in 15 minutes while dragging hours, yeah. hundreds of pounds, or 15 minutes, I say 15 minutes, 15 hours, 124 miles while dragging hundreds of pounds of gear all in 15 hours is yeah. insane. Yeah. That's insane. Yes. If Zach Bitter can <laughs> run a hundred miles in eleven hours and break a world record or an American, is it a world record or American record? American record. American Yeah, that's a crazy record. Yeah. A hundred fucking miles in eleven hours is that's crazy insane. running, and that guy did a hundred and twenty-four with hundreds of pounds of gear and a sled in fifteen hours. Exactly. That's a different thing. Just two different things, it's man. Two different things. Uh, and so, world record correction. Zach's world record. Yeah, Zach won the uh, world record. He He had the American record first, and then he broke the world record in his latest attempt. Zach Bitter's a monster. Yeah. Shout out to Zach. Um, But him being able to do that running is incredible. That guy being able to go further in just four hours longer, pulling hundreds of pounds of gear. Come on, National Geographic. They're just two different things. That's a different, and it's not unimpressive. It's incredibly impressive. I mean, that guy has f- fucking steel resolve to be able to do that and get all the way across the ice shelves yeah. and all that shit that he had to do. Absolutely, and I mean, the biggest thing for me is, uh, unfortunately, that was you know portrayed in a certain way. I don't know if it wasn't fact checked or what that, but like for me, the whole purpose of any of this, the whole purpose of writing the book and sharing it with the world and being on you know talking to people you know via your podcast or whatever, like my whole goal is to inspire other people to step outside of their comfort zones, do things in their life, challenge themselves. Like it's this is not about me. It's not about notches in the belt. Well, it's got to like, be a little bit about you. You wrote a book. I like right. it. I Have know. you written a book? No, I have not. Really? No. That surprises me. I started writing a book at one point in time, but I had uh, I had a deal with a, a, b- a book publisher, and the notes were so brutal. I gave them the money back. Really? Yeah. Like, they were like, they didn't this. like it? They wanted me to write essentially the way I write stand-up. They uh. wanted me to be like, set up punchline, set up punchline. I was like, this is not how you write things, guys. Like, they wanted it. They, Different they without even, the intonation of the voice and the- Yeah, they actually wanted to take my stand-up. They offered to just take my stand-up and transcribe it into a book. Uh, and I said, I'd never do that. And they're like, well, George Carlin did it. I go, it's because he owed the fucking IRS a billion dollars. <laughs> Come on, man. George, if you ask George, it was a good idea. I bet he would say no. Yeah. You know, he needed money. George Carlin was like deep in the hole with the IRS. He did a lot of things I'm sure he didn't want to do. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's a good idea to write a book that way. Well, I'll tell you, I have walked across the landmass of Antarctica by myself. I've rode a boat. I've done some other crazy shit in my life. But the hardest thing I've ever done is write a book. Really? <laughs> yes, man. No shit. Is that hard? It really was. You know, um, I'm, proud of, I'm proud of the outcome. You know, I really poured my heart and soul into it. But it was challenging. I've been journaling since I was a little kid, like since I was 12 years old. So going back through all my journals and thinking about, you know, there's the Antarctica a piece of this but it's uh the subtitle is from fire to ice so i talk about you know being burned in this fire in thailand being told i would never walk again normally right. going through all these pieces of my life but one of the things that happened when i was in Antarctica, which it was interesting to me maybe you'll find it interesting is as i was out there by myself in this empty white landscape 24 hours of daylight endless white nothingness my mind started filling in with all of these memories so i deleted almost all my music i'm in silence i'm a full solitude and like if i said to you hey joe remember the day you graduated from high school and like something's going to pop in your mind right now we're going to keep talking and you're going to move mm-hmm. on from that but when i was walking out there by myself if someone would pop in my head like hey colin remember that your first swim race when you were a little kid and all of a sudden like i'd be back there like i could like dive in and i could see my mom on the edge of the pool deck and this you know the wind's blowing across my face and i can see the kid next to me and i can taste the 
chlorine in my mouth. I mean, visceral memories, like a lucid dream were coming back to me throughout for weeks and weeks and weeks at a time. So the book itself, it reads about Antarctica, but it intersperses the way my experience was in Antarctica, which was actually going back in through my life in this kind of tapestry of sort of visceral memories and flashbacks of other expeditions and childhood and the ups and downs in my personal life and kind of all of these things kind of conspiring into one. But it was it was wild to go deep into the brain like that. Um, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. we, we should probably point out, we've had a podcast before, and this podcast that we did before was right after after you got back from this journey in Antarctica and you described the whole thing in Thailand, you described getting yeah. burned and how you never thought you were going to walk again and yeah. all that stuff. So we should tell people, so stop, right? Pause. Go, <laughs> go back to the, the other one. one. <laughs> and then come back here again. Um, how, what did, it, did it upset you when the National Geographic article came out? Like, what, did you feel like, well, they just got it wrong. Let me let me straighten them out. You know, it's one of those things. Um, I'd be curious to hear your perspective on kind of media and stuff like this. You've been around, you know, doing type of stuff like me more longer than me. But it, you know, it hurt my feelings, obviously. And I was kind of just, it was bizarre because it was so factually inaccurate. And National Geographic is, a, you know, a magazine or an outlet that I've looked up to throughout my entire course, life. It's yeah. just like a really beautiful, um, you know, platform. And so I was just surprised. I was surprised that I was never asked for a proper long form interview of this. I was surprised that I was never contacted by a proper fact checker. There was just some things that were just like weird and out of place. And, you know, I guess it was a freelancer. I don't, again, I don't know the yeah, whole story behind it. That's probably what it is. Um, but, uh, if I had a guess, look, there's very little in like praising people there's a whole lot in taking people down yeah if they could find that you did something that you uh did something incorrect or you lied about something or exaggerated about something i mean they made you out to be a liar yeah i mean i i read it and i was like wow like they're they're saying he's a liar yeah they're saying how much of it is fiction yeah literally said fiction but how much of it could be fiction if you fucking really did walk 54 goddamn days well, across not, Antarctica. Not only that, the kind of weird parts about it is not only that, but I also had a GPS on me the entire time. It was completely transparent. Every 10, 10 minutes, the entire journey were live for the sea. The New York Times covered it. They had my GPS tracker up live. The map of my route is in the first page of my book, let alone online 24-7. There's been hundreds of articles written about this by outlets who have fact-checked and researched or whatever. So for Nacho to make all those claims, it's like saying, like, Colin somehow tricked every person ever from every news outlet that's covered this and fact-checked it and reported on it and his editors of the book and this some hacked his jeep i mean it's like a crazy conspiracy weird like kind of do you stance think it's on it because everyone how do you say his name ausland ausland yeah that ausland had done it everybody knew that ausland had done it maybe they just didn't understand the details of it so they started complaining hey he didn't do it first Ausland did it first and this guy's like I got a story so he goes to try to go after you but then realizes like oh it's kind of he kind of did it first but the other guy did it well let's just say that the kite was cool right he had a cool kite but i mean he did even weirder things like in the first paragraph or second paragraph of the entire article he takes a quote from page 50 of my book and a quote from page 214 of my book and puts them and parses them together as if they're a single statement and i'm like they're about two completely different things that i'm talking about and you're like dude that's what people do, man. You know, they want to sell dirt. You know, or he says, like, Colin made up this thing about no rescue zones. No one's ever written about the fact of in Antarctica. And he talks about me getting picked up in Antarctica like I can call an Uber. He literally says in there, uses somebody else's quote, he says, I mean, getting picked up in Antarctica is like calling an Uber, which is by itself. He just really, really says literally that? says that in the article, which is just crazy. That's and hilarious. Then, Bitch, try getting an Uber in the woods in Montana. <laughs> okay. 
I'm like, I'm like you know? an Uber, and then the craziest thing, and again, that the, is so crazy. My response to this that. is just factual. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's. I just try to not be too defensive or anything about it. But it's just. Well, well the good news is this will reach way more people than that article. <laughs> yeah, it's. But, but the, I'll say one last thing about it. The irony of this is if you Google Borg Auslan. In 2018, right after or 2019, right after I finished my crossing, he's interviewed about all of this. And in a quote, and I linked to this in my, you know, my letter, it him saying, "There are parts of Antarctica, particularly in the large Sestrugi zones, which is exactly what I was talking about, where rescue is impossible." Like he, the guy who's uh-huh. against me, is also quoted saying the other thing. But then he says, "It's like the whole thing is just, you know, it's there's, crazy, man." There's so much money in shitting on someone. That's yeah. that's what it is. I'm sure. And trying I'm to keep sure my head up. Guy, well, I'm sure this guy who wrote that article is probably a little bit of a hater. Yeah. You know, probably saw you and like the fuck this guy, you know? It's, it's the world we live in, unfortunately. I try to, you know, keep my head up. Like I said, I wrote yeah. this book to inspire other people to step outside their comfort zones, sure do amazing paid things. You for it too, right? I got paid, paid for it as yeah. well. Yeah, I but got It's also like. Is that, when, is that so wrong? No, you definitely should get paid. <laughs> you should get paid for the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that they're trying to diminish what you did and what you really did do was walk by yourself for 54 days through Antarctica. And then one of the things he was even saying something about it was on a road. Yeah. And I'm like, Hey bitch, why don't you walk dragging 300 pounds on a road? Like, does that matter? Everything's covered in snow and ice. Like, exactly. what fucking road is this? Yeah, so there's basically this 300-mile uh, stretch, which is the, the last third of my part of my journey, which, by the way, was on my GPS, which, by the way, I talk about in my book, which, by the way, I widely acknowledge, and it's called the South Pole Overland Traverse. And so... The um, South Pole Station, the U.S. Mil- or sorry, the U.S. Uh, research station that's at the South Pole is resupplied um, throughout the summer season from the coast, and they drive this kind of um, bunch of tractors basically up this area called the Leverett Glacier. And it's not like a paved road. This is them driving over ice and snow and like filling in crevasses along the way, et cetera. And there's some tire tracks and some flagging that are out there. So first of all, I've traver- already traveled almost 600 miles without any of that. And then as I get there, and we know this is part of it, and I've talked about widely with all the polar experts, all of the people that make the classifications and unassisted refers specifically to kites and dogs. And they're trying to make this claim that the road somehow, quote unquote, air, big air quotes, road, basically some rutted up tracks in the snow, um, you know, I'm, I'm this out there. This is not a paved road. No, there's not a paved road out there. And the thing is, Antarctica is so brutal. We showed some clips last time. He's setting up my tent in 50, 60 mile per hour winds that it was like. Yeah. When that blows over, imagine driving a tractor over snow and then 50, 60 mile per hour winds come in. What do you think happens? It's yeah. blown over immediately. So right. I never saw these tractors. I never saw these vehicles. I never saw this. I, I saw some flags, of course. I saw some rutted tracks, but I linked to it on my uh, letter So it's this. really not much difference than walking on flat ground. No, not at all. And still, there's still this astrugi there. So there's still huge bumps of snow. And all the, a lot of the time it was whited. I was completely whited out. I couldn't see five or 10 feet in front of me. So it's not like I could, a lot of times these flags that were every 100 or 400 meters, it's not like I'd even see those. So it's just a shame. And- I've been very transparent about the fact that I used that route. It was the safest route. It was the only route the logistic company wanted to support. And it falls completely in the distinctions of what is known as unassisted. And he kind of makes this claim about that's not true where people are rethinking that. And one of the weird things is... Rethinking it. Right. So they're, they're now, because of some of this, the polar community have gotten together after my project. So my project squarely falls in the definitions as they were, followed all of the rules and all of this. Now, now they're sitting together and they're saying, you know, maybe we should rewrite some of these rules or make certain definitions different, which by the way, if they want to change rules, that's totally fine. 
The problem is, it would be like this. This is like, with them calling me sort of like a liar or something, would be equivalent of this. If Major League Baseball got together and said, you know what, all games in baseball are going to be 10 innings now instead of 9 innings. And all of those guys over the last 100 years that played 200,000 games or whatever, who played nine innings, they cheated, they lied, they didn't play the full game. Like, they, you know, they cheat. Just like, mm, you know, they're, yeah. they're, if they want to change whatever distinctions or classifications or stuff forward-looking, great. And, and what would the distinctions be that they would change, that you can't do it on a road? So I think they're trying to make it finer-grained, which is like there would be like a kite distinction. There would be um, a no-supported distinction. There would be a distinction for using, you know, partial of a, if there was a flagging or, or this like, you know, road, which by the way is not a road to be clear. It's snow and do ice. Do you have just images like the rest of this of road? Um, I don't. I, I don't. There's a, uh, there might, if you, if but you look, none of it, at no point in time was it like flat ground. No, it's ice and yeah. snow where a tractor, you might see like some wheels. And in fact, Lou Rudd, who's the other guy who I was racing out there in Antarctica, he wrote a whole blog post about that's linked to in my letter. And, you know, of course, he's, he did the exact same thing as me, by the way. The exact same thing, same distinction. Um, and, uh, you know, I finished a couple days ahead of him, but what he did was absolutely incredible is this, is this race. And we talk a lot about it in the book and a ton of respect for that guy as well. He's a friend of mine. And, you know, he, you know, writes about this, you know, quote unquote road of the South Pole Overland Traverse as it's actually known. And he's like, it's rutted up tracks. Like you couldn't, even if the parts where I saw tire tracks, it's like actually worse than because you don't slide across it. Because you don't slide across it. The snow is all rutted up. It's chunked up. It's actually like tripping you. It's like even worse. Like skiing on broken ice versus powder. Yeah. So this journalist and there's other people who are saying this, this is not like they've like been out there before. The thing is, it's a... it's an attractive thing to say. Part of his journey was actually on a road. You're like, oh, fuck that There's guy. a road in Antarctica? Yeah, but that's how it, it sounds. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, when you say part of it was on a road, it sounds like, like this is the road. Oh, Christ. That's it? That's that the road. It, that, that ain't not really a fucking road, man. <laughs> that's just flat snow. Exactly. And that and would be like the best case. Most of the time, it's wind blowing right. across it. Like that's on the perfect conditions, perfect sunny day. But look to that. the left and look to the right. Exactly. Like it doesn't like, make a difference. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah. That's really deceptive that they, they wrote that. Yeah. That's so. really deceptive because they made it seem like, oh, and then he gets to the highway and he's just walking. <laughs> it's like, hey, check, put my thumb yeah. out, like, like you know, pick up a come bus. Come man. He still oh. went 54 fucking days across Antarctica. And I know they acknowledged that in a small way in the article, but they really, uh, like, just that, just the description calling that a road. Like that is, I mean, sort of technically a road. There's no fucking ground, man. It's just all ice and snow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't see the ground. Exactly. And like I said, I was transparent about it. That was my route. Asked all yeah. the people. They're like, yep, you're within the rules. You're doing the right thing. No one's ever done this before. And then, God, you know. Damn, everybody's a fucking hater. Yeah. That's the world we crabs live in, in a unfortunately. Bucket. You know that expression? No, tell me that. Throw crabs in a bucket. None of them ever get out because when they try to get out, the other ones grab them and drag them oh, down. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They're piling so. on top of each other. The other crabs just yeah. get out here with me. <laughs> Fuck, I can't walk 54 days. You can't either, bitch. <laughs> just drag you. Onward. Onward, onward. Uh, onward is nice, but man, it's really disturbing. Have you thought about suing them? Um, you know, drop the hammer, son. Call the Jews. Yeah, Do yeah. You know, like, any, you know any good Jews? <laughs> they're uh, attorneys. You know, is that, is that racist to say? I don't think it is because they're positive. They're really good at it. Some would some would say they're not. Uh, that it is racist or um, anti-Semitic. Yeah. Do you have a Jewish attorney? I do not have a Jewish attorney. I do. You do? Yeah, just get one. <laughs> All right. <They're> awesome. <laughs> I'm sure there's some Irish attorneys that are awesome too. Uh, That's a weird one, right? Like racism when it's positive. Like if you say black guys have big dicks, people get mad at you. 
just saying they're awesome. Like, you know? <laughs> That's true. That's it's true. a weird one. Like, it's not really racist. Just saying someone's really dist- – like, Italians make really good pizza. Is that racist? I love pizza. I do, too. <laughs> um, sorry, we got way off track. So, so put this stuff aside. Have, have you – have you considered legal action or are you, you know, the, like I said, I published this 16 page or, or this pitching page do- document that's on my website. I sent it to the editor of national geographic. Um, they have acknowledged that they've received it. And like I said, it's been a holiday weekend. So they've had a few days to have it and hopefully they do the right thing. You know, it is, you know, ultimately it's, it's defaming. It's ultimately yeah. painting the wrong picture. Um, is and it like on, I said, it's is online. It in print? Yeah. Their version is in print as well as online or just online. Oh, their article is yes. just online. Yeah, I hope they take it down. Yeah, yeah. yeah but the problem is then. But if not, then someone's already seen it. So then, exactly. And then you know, people. I mean, people like writing on my Instagram, like, "You liar! I fucking hate you! I hope mm. you die!" And you're like, "Whoa, man!" Like that, you know, exactly. and, and that hurts, man. I'm not gonna lie. I'm a human being. Like it, it hurts my feelings to see that, particularly when it's about something that's completely not true. Like people are saying, like, "I heard you took a fucking Uber out there and you like just walked <laughs> on this road," or and you're like. Like, uh, you know, that's hilarious. Yeah, but you know, that is the problem with those kind of articles that yep. right there in a nutshell is that especially people that sort of peripherally look at them. Exactly. You, know, you don't really go through it extensively and examine what this guy's saying. Yeah. So hopefully it doesn't come to legal action. Hopefully they do the right thing here. They've reviewed the facts and we can move on. Dude. Yeah. Call a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Make it happen. Um, so now you get through this, right? You write your book and you get in this this rowboat journey. Had the rowboat jo- journey been done before? So the rowboat before, um, there's a storied history of ocean rowing. So ocean rowing, um, you know. Uh, sure, the Polynesians. Yeah. I mean, it goes way back, but even at kind of as a sport. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the polar community wants to do this more formally, but there's something called the Ocean Rowing Society that has, you know, the records of different rows going back over time. Um, there's this race across the Atlantic um, that happens called the Talisker Ocean, uh, Talisker Whiskey Ocean Race um, across the Atlantic from um, from the, or is it go from, from the Canary Islands to the Caribbean every uh, winter that happens. So ocean rowing, I mean, it's a subculture. It's a small subculture. Don't get me wrong, but it happens. Like it's a thing, you know, there's, yeah. there's boats, there's races, there's competitions. But no one had yeah so drake passage had never been rowed fully and completely before there was a guy um who's fucking legend as well um i wish i wish he was still alive because i'd love to sit down more than anything this guy's name is ned gillette um a true true like explorer i mean actually got um killed uh in the late 90s i believe when he was climbing in the himalayas or in pakistan um he got shot um by someone who came through the camp i don't know the whole story it was a super sad story but he's done all of these projects you know before social media and stuff like this this guy was out there doing these badass things and he made this boat uh called the sea tomato and he took it down to chile um, to try to kind of do a what was like kind of a hybrid row and sail. And so he has a sailing mast on there. He's got oars. He's got four guys with him. They try it the first season. They actually can't even launch their boat off of Cape Horn. So they wait a whole other year. And then the second year, they launch the Sea Tomato um, under why, sail. Why do they have to wait a year? Because the weather, I mean, Drake Passage is, gnarly. we'll get to that, but it is gnarly, bro. Like it is like, I mean, people, you know, as you say, going around the horn, people say that in sailing, like Cape Horn is known to just be like just treacherous, brutal water as the two these oceans kind of collide and these huge standing waves come up. So a whole season, they sat down there with their rowboat and didn't even launch it. Then the next year came back. Him and four guys. How small is the window where you can make it across? 
So uh, basically, the best time of year to do it would be December, January, because that's the Southern Hemisphere summer. Um, and so the temperature is a little bit warmer. You've got longer days. We purposefully did it over the um, summer so- or the summer solstice. So December 21st, you know, that'd be June 21st for us in the Northern Hemisphere, um, the longest day of the year. We still had night, um, you know, a few days, a few hours of darkness every single night, but we at least had the longer days because once it gets dark and there's waves coming at you from every single direction, I mean, it is fucking scary man yeah. like it this is, is it this is drake passage obviously as seen from a bigger boat than mine but oh, you know fuck that <laughs> can i see what it was like in your boat Do yeah you video yeah you if, you, video if you pull up my instagram if you pull dude. up my instagram uh how many people die out there i mean it, i don't know the Seems numbers like but um well th- the, a plane crash happened the day we were leaving and 38 people died in a plane crash in drake passage as we were about to depart on our robe. It's oh, a whole, wow. that's a whole other, whole other crazy story. But, um, but you know, there's definitely, I mean, there's shipwrecks out there. There's boats that have gone down. There was a, a cruise ship, I think that went down in the two thousands. Um, um, Drake passage, in Drake passage. Yeah. Oh, in a cruise Jesus ship. Christ. Um, I hope I don't get that story completely wrong, but I'm pretty sure a big boat went down in the last 10 years or so. What the fuck so. is a cruise ship doing there? They what, go to Antarctica. See that? They do the, they go to the peninsula of Antarctica. So oh. actually there's quite a few, uh, cruise ships. Um, yeah. So here, here's me. Uh, oh, so it's actually fairly calm sometimes. So I mean, some of the times, if you yeah, see, the, you got some swells, but I mean, you'll see this next part. So this is me in the tiny little cabin. Um, I mean, waves coming over, they're crashing. The so where's good. the cabin and the, the where closest so to us? Yeah, closest to us is the little cabin that I was in. There was just one of us in there. And this is, uh, so this is us putting out something called the sea anchor. Um, that's when the waves got so big or the wind and swell was against us so much that we couldn't row anymore. And it's like throwing a parachute that basically like kind of tries to hold you in place. Um, yeah, I mean, you look at those How does waves the sea coming anchor over the top. Work? What is it? So it's like a huge parachute, basically. It's in the um, water? And you put it in the water and it fills with water and it holds the boat into place. I mean, not very well. Ah. Even in this, if we had the volume up, it's me basically uh, talking about how we're getting pushed back back in the wrong direction but we can't even we don't have the strength to row against it anymore um just getting hammered um but the how sea far anchor, did it push you back i think that time it pushed us back like uh 15 or 20 miles um whoa but, yeah so you lose 15 or 20 miles of progress yeah and that one that was the longest sea anchor i believe we were on it for 26 hours and so what happens is like i you saw on the boat there's three people rowing three people in the cabins at any given time and the cabins are tiny when you're even with the you know one person on one side like i was two in the other side like you're like smashing there like a sardine but then when you put the sea anchor out no one's rowing anymore and that you know open decking it's like really dangerous to just be sitting out there so we all try to get in the cabins but like this icelandic dude who's the captain Fion Paul, I mean, he's like amazing row, you know, six foot two, broad shoulders, whatever. All of a sudden, the two of us are jammed inside of like the smallest little compartment. It's like two feet, around three feet wide by three feet tall. We're like spooning each other. We're oh, wet. Whoa. We're cold. We're in there for 26 hours that time. Like, How you- did you guys poop? Uh, so if you look, that's me. Yeah, that this one shows kind of the wave, the big swell. I'm the I'm the, the one in the back there, um, mm. and uh, I'm sitting right next to a really fancy toilet, a little something called a five gallon bucket. Oh, that's what you did. You pooped in a bucket. Pooped in a bucket. And not then not it too overside. fancy. Yeah, um, and, uh, and then, then then the fish can snack on that. But Jeez. you know, you obviously get. Not only were we spooning under sea anchor, smashing these little things, and then and oftentimes those other, the other guys in the other compartment, either three um, three of them were inside the compartment at a time. And and one would be sitting out um, and taking shifts, or they sometimes smash four in there. Um, but I mean, they're like literally on top of each other. So we got close, but then also, obviously, there's no space on the deck. So it's like, hey, man, just turn your head away. I'm going to be, you know, pooping a, basically a foot away from you while you row into this bucket. Like, and don't mind me. Those like, mountain houses will create some horrible smells out of your body. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've had those mountain houses while hunting. They're rough, <laughs> especially for me because I don't eat a lot of carbs. Like, yeah, there's just yeah. it's all like you know. Yeah, they taste so, good though. They do taste good. Yeah, they especially when you're really in the good. middle of the ocean. I bet they're delicious. I loved them. Yeah, yeah, they're really good. That that and the bars. I was happy with with the eating was good, but uh, when yeah. you're halfway out there, was there any point in time where you're like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Why am I doing this? Yes, 100%. <laughs> so one of the things, like, you know, people have asked me was, you know, solar Antarctica crossing harder in the row, whatever, and it's like they're very different. But one of the things that was so brutal about this, Antarctica and the crossing was, was a lot colder than the Drake Passage row. It was about average temperature when we were out there was probably like in the low 30s, you know, dipped below a few times. But the ocean temperature... Like I said, it's 32, you know, 33, you know, just above freezing. There's icebergs in the water and we're getting close to it. And you're just getting splashed the entire time. So from like minute one, hour one, leaving Cape Horn, we are soaking wet. And what kind of equipment are you wearing? Like what kind of gear are you wearing that keeps you from so, getting really cold? So we we started out um, in just this Gore-Tex, so this thick like sailing yeah. Gore-Tex basically. And that worked pretty well for the first few days. But one of the other cool innovations... Um, that Fion thought of having done so much ocean rowing is he was like, dude, the only way this is going to work is if we have some sort of dry suit. It's just too cold. But you start looking at dry suits and you're like, you could never row. You couldn't be functional like wearing like this like crazy dry suit, right? And so he basically says he he spends the year. One of the things that he did is he found this like Polish manufacturer and we all got our bodies measured, you know, 25, six different measurements and all this and basically created these custom dry suits that were a lot thinner than a typical dry suit suit but kept us dry but also allowed us to have the mobility on the oars and it was really actually built for the sitting position and the leg you know the leg press and the arm motion mm. and all of that of rowing um so it was awesome innovation and we got just i mean thank god we had those because we were getting soaked i mean we were getting so 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 soaked out there and in the 90 minutes you would think like oh in the 90 minutes quote unquote rest phase you would get in there you know maybe change clothes or something like that. No, absolutely not. Like the, we had these suits on, we're soaking wet. We'd get in the cabin. We were all sharing like one sleeping bag. Like I had just one sleeping bag that Fian and I were alternating. It's soaking wet after the first day. Yeah. There's just like, it's basically like, if I showed you what it looked like on the last day, you'd be like, I wouldn't sit in there for one minute, let alone like try to sleep. And there's like no pillars, like water, like the like brown water on the bottom. Like, and you're just like, you know, it's the smells from us living in and out of there for this. I mean, it, it was grimy and wet and cold, but these suits, um, suited us pretty well the one thing that was great you know obviously we were clipped in for safety so we were clipped into basically these ropes that you saw on the edge of there so if we were going to get knocked off um the boat hopefully we would you know be able to clipped in or the boat itself actually fully self-right so if it rolls over it hypothetically rolls back over the top we had some close calls but we never fully rolled it thank god um but we did test that but one of the things about the suits is the suits um basically have like neoprene booties it's all like one kind of one piece like you would have in a dry suit which was awesome for keeping us you know safe and dry but i didn't take the suit off for the last six or seven days at all and so when i finally took the suit off my feet like you think about your fingers getting like pruny maybe like you know in a swimming pool for a couple hours or hot tub or something like that like imagine seven days of wet and cold and sweat and like all the things like when I took the suit off like I almost threw up on the ground because it was just like gnarly festering skin and like like skin was ripping off of my feet like it was nasty how long did it take you to recover from that um, I don't know exactly, you know, it's hard to put the point on like, oh, I'm recovered, but definitely took a few weeks to just kind of get everything back, you know, this, the stability back in uh, body, Jesus mind, Christ, you know, all man. of that. So, uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting for sure. <sighs> what are you going to do next? 
Because I know you. You're one of those dudes. You have to keep doing these things. I don't like, know. Once you've done two of these things, you're going to keep doing these things. Yeah, I did a couple before that, too. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think last time your advice to me was stop. Stop while stop you're alive. While you're, yeah. Um, but you didn't listen, obviously, <laughs> so don't listen to me anymore anyway. Just keep doing what you got to do. Um, you know, look, like, I'm passionate about these things. It's it's super fun. Um, I do them because I like testing the edges of my potential. I like exploring different places. Like, I'd never, like I said, I'd never rode a boat before. And to kind of take this project on and say, you know, I've done expeditions before. I've pushed my body in, you know, deep and interesting ways. But one of my biggest curiosities is certainly about the mind, but, you know, particularly like growth mindset. Can I say like, I'm not a rower, but in the course of a year of training, I'm going to train myself up, get on a team with some amazingly, you know, accomplished watermen and learn the skills required to, you know, make this crossing. And it was mm. cool to kind of prove that out this year, because I think that that really applies across so many things. And I'm just a generally curious person. Um, and I think I'll keep pushing myself and pushing my body because that's one of the things that I love to do. But I think that curiosity throughout my life is going to be, you know, uh, a lifelong path of, of diving into sort of different things and taking them on. I think that to me, one of my biggest sadnesses and one of the things I like to say to people is like, you know, people come to a certain point in their life and they're like, you know, I'm, I'm a lawyer or I'm good at math or I'm terrible at art or like I could never do comedy because I'm not the funny one or I'm like, you know, these limiting beliefs inside of us. It's like, I could be like, dude, I've never rode ever in my life. I'm, you know, 34 years old, you know, I've never rode a boat, but actually like, but like, doesn't mean I can't learn now to row a boat. Seems um, pretty straightforward. Yeah, exactly. How hard could it be? <laughs> you get a little leg action too. What did you uh, do to prepare for it physically? So um, the physical the physical prep was was pretty cool. Um, I don't know if you remember from last time, but um, I have this coach. His name is Mike McCastle, um, and he's just this legendary guy. He's uh, you know done five thousand eight hundred pull ups in twenty four hours. He's pulled a, a truck across Death Valley. Yeah, nights I really, yeah he's a total yeah. total legend. Um, and he trained me up for Antarctica. I mean, I came to him and I said, "Hey, look, like I'm not the most experienced polar explorer. I got to pull this three hundred seventy five pound sled. Like, what do you think? How can you train me up?" And he came up with such cool training uh, methodologies for that. Like he had one of the things he had me doing for Antarctica was he had me, you know, I was doing planks with my hands in ice buckets and, you know, as my heart rate's getting jacked up, he's having me hold that. And all of a sudden he's like, all right, get out. And I do in a wall sit, but now my feet are in the ice buckets and he puts a, a weight plate on top of my uh, legs. And he's like, okay. And then he hands me these Legos and he's like, solve these Lego problems. And until you don't solve this Lego and build this little, like, you know, aircraft little Lego man or whatever, you know, you can't get your feet out of the ice bucket. I'm like, what the hell is going on but he's like look you're going to be in Antarctica. Your life is going to depend on you, tie, you know, securing your tent right or tying down the ropes properly or this and that. And the other thing, you're going to be cold. Your hands are going to be frozen. You're going to be tired, but you're going to need your mind, your dexterity to be there. Um, yeah, there's the there's a picture uh, of that of of Mike bringing me through that. And so with the row, it was super cool to come to him again and say like, hey man, like there's no blueprint for this. Like there's no blueprint for this. There's no one that's done a, a fully human power crossing of Drake Passage before um, to the Antarctic Peninsula. Like there's some ocean rowers, but this is different. Like how should we prepare for this? And Mike, it's not like he's like, well, I know everything about ocean rowing, but that same curiosity, that same growth mindset, I trust his, you know, sort of ability to train me. He's like, I don't know, man, like let's start thinking through this. And so in the gym, I mean, we did all sorts of creative things. He brought the ice back. He started putting putting 
a rowing machine on BOSU balls, like half BOSU balls, basically. And I'd start rowing, you know, did the normal rowing motion, but he'd start shaking it around because basically the ocean is going to be moving me around so much. So just the rowing motion isn't going to prepare me for the lateral movements, you know, the, the, the lats, the obliques, you know, the, all the kind of side to side stability stuff. Then he took it one step further, which is he actually shows up at my house, knocks on my door at two o'clock in the morning. I think he had prearranged it with my wife, um, knocks on the door and he's like, get up. And I'm like, what, what is happening? And he's like, we're going we're training right now and he gets me he's got those bosu balls but now it's the middle of the night so i'm sleep deprived i'm kind of disoriented now he's got me on the bosu balls and he had brought these buckets of ice water so i'm rowing this thing it's shaking around it's the middle of the night and he starts throwing ice water on me and we're doing these laps yeah here i am uh you know getting into this uh the yeah you could check these out the discovery channel did back it says training for the drake the impossible row episode three you could find it online jamie it's on the discovery channel YouTube page? YouTube, they have a whole uh, playlist with all these okay. videos. Okay. Yeah, so there's Great. 14 of these videos uh, training all the way through the whole Project Discovery, put them online. They're actually doing a feature-length documentary this spring. But What yeah. did you do for rowing, for the specific muscles of rowing yourself? Did you lift weights? Did you do rows? Did you use a rowing machine? What did you use? Yeah, so the rowing machine on the BOSU balls, that's like in the gym. Um, right. Also, a lot of deadlift uh, was really useful. Um, and then a lot of stability stuff. So Mike would have me do certain things, like we'd have, you know, like a seated row or something like that, or one of the things I thought that was the most interesting because it was going to be disabled. So the waves are usually coming from, at any, they change directions, but at any given time, they're coming generally from one direction. So you're either leaning in really hard to your left side, or you're leaning in really hard to your right side. That's a difference to the ocean rowing than just like a pure river rowing. And, you know, he would have me basically um, like holding, uh, imagine like a, uh, like, a, uh, like a deadlift bar. Mm-hmm. And then I would have my eyes closed. I'd be holding it there in kind of an isometric motion. And then he would pull the plate a light plate off one of the sides. And so I'd have to stabilize and catch, you know, either my left side or my right side. So a lot of stabilization and balance stuff. And then the other piece that was huge, you know, Mike, you know, admittedly doesn't know a lot about rowing specifically in terms of the technique of rowing. And the technique of rowing is actually very specific. And so um, a friend of mine, a guy named Chris Woida um, from Portland, um, uh, he, I called him up and he's like this champion rower, collegiate rower, um, rowing coach. And he took me out on the Willamette River in Portland in a single man, like rowing skull. So very different than an ocean rowboat you know ocean rowboat's a lot bigger different different waves but he taught me on the river the actual purity of the rowing motion so a lot of the training and the physical aspects of getting stronger was with mike and the mindset and the ice and all the things we did there but certainly the stuff that we did um on the row on the river uh in uh in the willamette with chris was was huge for me to actually understand the motion because I, I just like you when you're like how hard can it be and you just kind of push your arms you know back and forth um it's a pretty complicated motion it's a full body thing Thing. It's a it's, it's right? a very coordinated thing. You know, you're powering out of different things, and certainly on river rowing, you're having to um, you know square. It's called squaring uh, the blades and. Um, you know, you've got taking the blades out of the water and, you know, turning them so they could slide across the top and get back in and glide and all that kind of stuff. So, um, there's a lot, there's a lot to the motion. And so it was a, a short period of time. I didn't take my first stroke in a rowboat, uh, until July in, in the, in the, uh, in the river and then August in the ocean rowboat when we came together as a team for the first time to train in Scotland. And then I was rowing across the Drake in December. So it was a, a pretty short period of time to kind of learn, learn about rowing and get stronger, but it was a fun process to dive into something completely new. So all from from August, September, October, November into December, did you train and row all the time? Um, 
you know, quite a lot, but there was other things going on. I was writing this, I was writing a book. I was, oh, you, you were know, writing the book at the same yeah, time? Yeah, writing the book at the same training. time, you know, I was traveling, doing different things. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously the training was a core focus, um, but uh, it wasn't like I was like every day, I was always doing is rowing 10 hours a day or something like that. There was, uh, you know, other things going on. But I'd imagine you would need some pretty spectacular endurance to do that 90 minutes on the hour every 90 minutes. Yeah, so you got 90 minutes on, 90 minutes off, 90 How minutes on, 90 minutes that off. that strategy for doing it that way? Just like, to not burn yourselves out too much, but yeah. So, like I said, Fion, you know, has you know a lot of ocean rowing experience, and from his other expeditions, we kind of collectively talked about it as a team. And he was just like, okay, you know, this is what he felt has worked the best for people to you know do a long stretch, get enough rest. But you know, obviously, maybe the first day or two, you think, oh, I could row for four hours at a time or something like that. And then you get longer stretch of rest, but over time, like your body really starts to wear it down. And so he kind of, you know, felt that was the happy balance. And it definitely, like, I mean, I was delirious. We were all delirious and sleep deprived and it got weird out there for sure. But I think it was the best. My body actually held up pretty well. And I Did felt you like, it all? Oh, it was, yeah, it was a wild, like it, the things going on in my mind, the, the nighttime, like the night shift was really crazy. So at the night, the, the light nights weren't super long. You got about, three hours of darkness every single night, but that meant at least one 90 minute shift was complete darkness. And so I know where you're going that, that part is like, I mean, it's weird enough to be out in this tiny little boat, bobbing around in the middle of the ocean, knocking back and forth. Um, but all of a sudden it gets completely dark and like you can see nothing. And so waves kind of come up out of nowhere. It's very, very disorienting. I was rowing. So on my shift, it was myself, a guy named Jamie, uh, who's from Scotland and a guy named Cam Bellamy, a uh, South African guy who I got a funny story about him. He's an absolute legend. Um, so it was the three of us out there rowing on our shift and the other shift was, uh, Andrew, John and Fion. Um, and on our shift in the middle of the night, I don't know how it started, but it was one of the first nights that we were out there. It's kind of like, you know, you've been rowing all day and then all of a sudden now you're wet and cold and it's dark like it's just like it's just like this sucks like right. those are those moments when you're like having your lowest moments and we uh you know you might make fun of me but we started singing man we just started singing out Why there would I, make fun of you for singing? <laughs> I don't know man. i didn't make fun of you for rolling across the yeah ocean. there you go um you know we started singing like i uh, i think i just started belting out one day uh you know i was i was actually born on a hippie commune uh, my mom played bob marley redemption song throughout my entire birth there's like you know people watch my birth on my futon so i started like oh pirates yes they rob our soul I to the merchant ships. We're just belting it out. No, I mean, I, my voice is terrible, but Did you uh, hate we're these having guys fun. By the end of the trip, um, you know, uh, no, uh, <laughs> it was intense. I mean, working. Did anybody hate you? I don't know. You have to ask them, I guess. Mm. Um, no, no. We honestly, it was it was a crazy social experiment. We've yeah. got guys from four different countries, three different continents. Yeah. No one knows each other super well. Few of them um, had done a project before in the past, so they they know each other a bit better. But in general. Um, we weren't, you know, it's not like it was six guys who were like, oh, we've done a bunch of stuff together. We're bros. We've all hang out. Um, and it really, you know, required some really diligent um, kind of human dynamics to bring it all together. One of the things, we came together in Scotland in August and we rode for the first time. That's the first time we all met each other. We came together. That's where our rowboat was. We were getting it custom built and built out. Um, and then, uh, then that was the only time we saw each other in person. We get these Skype calls and stuff. And then we got down to Punta Arenas, which is where we staged it out of um, uh, in Chile, in Southern Chile there. That's kind of, we got a rowboat, we imported it, we're getting everything going. And those 10 days were in preparation were some of the absolute hardest of the entire project, getting to the start line, right? And 
you know, there's gear everywhere. We're trying to figure out how it all fits. Like, you know, we're, how are we going to fit all this food in here and our personal gear? And there's nowhere this. And we're trying to pack the boat. And like, you know, tensions are elevated. Everyone's just kind of like nervous. Like the reality of what we're about to do is setting in. And, um, you know, there was kind of some, some breaking points. And, and to credit where credit's due, one of the guys named Andrew Town, absolute amazing guy. Um, he's actually a, a management consultant. So he's like a lawyer, businessman, management consultant. And uh, he's like, he's like facilitates all these conversations in his work. And he's sits us down and he goes hey guys like we need to have like a real conversation about like teamwork and what's going on because there's six of us in this tiny little boat life on the lines we come from different cultures different backgrounds different things like let's set some intentions and you know at first i think we were all maybe a little bit skeptical but he sits us down and we have this conversation about like you know let's talk let's talk let's talk real like what are our real fears going into this like what are our vulnerabilities what are our weaknesses how can we trust one another and you know we all were very honest with one another and i think it really set the tone for the entire thing one of the guys is a school principal and he's got a two-year-old daughter at home and he's like hey guys like i want to do this like i want to be a part of this project but like here's some of my fears, you know? And, and for me, I'm like, look, like we got to have a communication. We got to be able to say to each other, if we're having a bad day, we got to just be honest. Like, Hey, I'm not having a good day, but it's not cause like I'm a bad person. You know, we got to support one another and really having that facilitated conversation as a team early on before we were out in the water and the intensity, I think carried us through. And I'm so, so, so grateful that Andrew facilitated that conversation. Cause that was a really turning point in the group dynamics. And so the discovery channel was their idea for this thing. Did no. they come to you guys? Yeah. So that the whole discovery thing, is is really cool part of this um so uh, basically what happens, Fion, Fion had the idea for it, this you know, legendary you know, ocean rower, and um, but the component parts of pulling it all together are really complicated. One of the reasons is because the Anar- so say you owned a yacht or something like that, and you're like, you know what, Colin, I want to take my yacht to Antarctica. Like, that's not really uh, something that you can just do. There's a whole bunch of environmental protections and laws and things like that. There's like specific boats that have like permitting that's called this, called the IATO Treaty. Um, and it's basically what governs like tourism in Antarctica. And the reason they do that is because of sort of environmental concerns in Antarctica. And it's a really good thing. But turns out like my ocean rowboat is not like part of like the full treaty of Antarctica. And so the only way to do it and be like well within the rules and like above board within everything that's going on in Antarctica, all the environmental protections is to have one of the IATO certified boats um, there and a part of this. And so what we realized is we needed what was called a supervising vessel, not a vessel that would, you know, give us support in the middle and hang out with us and we could jump off and take a hot shower, but a boat that's basically overseeing the totality of the project and also has like us being like fully permitted throughout that. And so we're like, okay, like that's interesting. There's going to be this other boat out there. We got to figure out who this is. It's super expensive. So we got to raise the money to make sure we can have that, you know, all these types of things. The only way it can work. We kind of got set to work on doing that. Myself, uh, my wife, Jenna, she builds these projects with me, Blake, who works with me, and a bunch of people kind of working on kind of the details of it. And we quickly realized like, wow, what an amazing opportunity. If we have this other boat out there, we can film this thing. And I've wanted to film my pro- some of my projects and share them really widely before. But when you're walking across Antarctica, dragging a 375 pound sled, and the whole purpose of the goal is to be solo. It's not like you can have like a cameraman just like hanging out there, like shooting you, right. you know, I mean, although there's just a road, so there's <clears> just people <throat> hanging out there. <laughs> <laughs> LOL. Uh, yeah. <laughs> LOL. Um, but uh, basically, 
um, that's when we said, hey, like, let's see if someone will be interested in coming on as a media partner of this and really filming this and sharing this um, in a big in a big way. And so um, we got to talking with Discovery. Um, they got on board of it. And it was a really cool vision. It was kind of a combined vision of theirs and ours through all my other projects. I mentioned the GPS through my last, you know, Antarctica crossing and my other previous world records before. I always carry this GPS and share it in real time. I have this nonprofit where, you know, during the row, there were 600,000 school kids and school curriculums we built around like ocean and environmental learning and stuff like that all incorporated into the kind of daily um, following along with the science and curriculum. And so I always want to share the projects in real time. And so we talked to Discovery and they're like, this is super cool. Let's do three different things at once here. So we invest in all this satellite technology with Iridium, the Iridium satellites, and they were able to basically allow us to do social media during the time. So if you're like sitting at home on Christmas Day as we're arriving in Antarctica, like you watching me bouncing around on this, you know, rowboat, you can follow the whole thing. And, and then who's doing this? The other boat? So, I, yeah, they have the satellites on the other boat, but um, we have, I'm shooting the social media and the content and on the other my boat. And the other boat is powered how? It's a prop, it's like a norm, it's like a 120 foot like boat with like a proper engine and well, stuff like nice that. Well, that's nice that they were with you too. Yes. So yes. shit goes sideways. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, definitely had that as the, they, they never, Why they didn't never you tell them to carry the food too. <laughs> because, so the unsupported part of the project it, of like course. means the second we launched, like they couldn't touch right. us. If they touched us in, you know, it's catastrophic, over. it's over. It, right. That's the end of the thing. Um, and so uh, my wife, my wife was on board that she runs all the British projects for me in the background. Anyways, but she was actually, so she crossed the Drake in this larger boat, which by for Drake Passage standards is still a much smaller boat. Um, there were six guys, you know, who were five guys who ran the boat and then five guys on the Discovery film crew, but they rigged our ocean rowboat up with all these GoPros and batteries and all this kind of stuff. So we were completely self-sufficient on the boat itself um, and just had to like switch out memory cards and stuff for ourselves. But what ended up happening is there was a social media component happening live. And then what Jamie just pulled up in the video of me training, there's these 14 episodes on Discovery Go that are online right now. And they're all like five to 10 minutes long that kind of tell the story in mid-form episodes, which is cool because that was coming out concurrently. So while we were out there, they were putting these pieces of content sent out by the satellites that people could see. And then this spring, a couple months from now, they're going to have a, a long-form uh, documentary that comes out about the entire thing. And there's definitely um, been some really cool footage of ocean rowing expeditions in the past, but to have a boat out there and to be able to shoot it from the perspective um, of not on the rowboat. Sometimes on the rowboat, it's weird. Like you've seen boats in really big swells, but because the perspective on the rowboat, it's kind of moving with it. You can't kind of dwell how big it is. But I think there's a video of like, actually the last video maybe I posted on my Instagram where you can see the boat or my boat just completely disappearing and going up and down and completely disappearing in the waves. And they're able to shoot back and get drone footage and all this sort of stuff. So the, the feature length documentaries to come out in a couple months um, will be really cool on Discovery. That's awesome. Um, it's just a crazy thing that you've done. And it, it begs the question, when you do crazy things, like, uh, does this change you as a person? Does, like, you, you, walking across Antarctica is one. Rowing across the Drake stretch, is it what it's called? Drake Passage, Drake Passage is yeah. another. Like, is this changing you as a person? Like, wh what are these? Because these are experiences where if you told someone, hey, you're going to sleep 90 minutes, um, at, a, at a clip and then you're going to row for 90 minutes and you're going to poop into a bucket and you're going to sleep like a sardine with a bunch of other dudes on this boat you're not going to sleep much you're probably going to hallucinate sometimes you're going to row in the dark <laughs> sing then, songs yeah but you'll get through it though a yeah. couple weeks later you'll be done yeah like these th these are weird things that you're doing that's sort of changing like your personal life experiences are so much more extreme than the average person's yeah, 100%. I mean, you know, 
one of my reasons for doing this for sure is to test the limits of my own potential and grow. I'm not doing them just to like, so that I can be the exact same person on the other side of Antarctica or the other side of Drake Passage. It's, right. it's to take that learning. And, you know, I've been asked like a similar question, I guess, before, but my answer or the way that I kind of think about it is I've started to think about life like the... I mean, how do I put this? I've started thinking about life and the totality of life experience between, like, say, a numerical one and ten. Like, one being the worst day of your life, and ten being the best day of your life. And you know, one might be you know a day that a family member passes away, or one might be being wet and cold and freezing in an ocean rowboat, you know, spooning with this other guy, and you know, been shit in a bucket and being exhausted and tired. You know, like just like rough moments in your life, right? And ten is this hedonistic joy, the most pleasure-filled day ever, just happy, joyful. Maybe you've succeeded in something you've accomplished, like all this kind of stuff. And as I've kind of looked around at the world, people say, what are you afraid of? You must not be afraid of being alone, or you must not be afraid of, you know, these hard challenges or stuff like that. I'm like, well, maybe not. But what I'm really afraid of is actually living a life range bound between four and six. I think too often people, you know, the typical life experience, unfortunately, because we have some creaser comforts, particularly in the Western world, where, you know, you can live a life and you're stuck between four and six. So maybe the happiest day of your year, or your week, it's like the Super Bowl and your team wins the Super Bowl and you crush a couple beers with your buddy and you high five and you're like, oh, that was awesome. Like, that was cool. But it's not 10. I mean, it's a six. And then like maybe the worst day of your week, it's like a Monday and your boss yells at you or something like that. And you're just like, you're like, oh man, like that's kind of bummer. But you know what? I don't really give a shit about my job anyway. So like, I'm not really that bummed about it. It's just like is like, I'm just kind of like in this like life of like quiet desperation in the middle. And I think a lot of that has to do with because we're hedging or we're afraid of the ones. We're just like, I don't want to experience the one. I don't want to experience discomfort. I don't want to experience pain, like anything to do that. But what I've realized, I think of it like kind of a pendulum, like swinging the totality of life experience, like to get to the tens, you also need to embrace the ones, like the totality of life and the experience. It's not, I'm not experiencing these high highs or these hedonistic joys or these beautiful flow states or things like that, you know, in spite of the ones, in spite of the challenge, but it's because of them. Yeah. By pulling my sled, you know, 53 days on my 53rd day of pulling my sled across Antarctica, I get there, my hips are poking out, my ribs are sticking out, I'm exhausted, I can barely pick my duffel bag up to put it in my sled, my body's completely compromised, I'm exhausted. But then I tap into the deepest flow state of my entire life. I find this place in my mind, in my body, in my soul. And, you know, I pushed 32 hours without stopping to the finish line. And I wouldn't have gotten there had I not pushed myself, had I not, you know, gone through this difficulty. You know, I like to say that, you know, pain is mandatory. These challenges are painful, straight up. Pain is mandatory. Make no mistake about this. The obvious things I'm doing are painful. They're hard, whatever. But the suffering part is optional. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be in these moments so wound up like, oh my God, this is horrible. I'm in this. And why did I get myself out there? This is terrible. Blah, 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 blah. And go down this path. You're like, I'm doing this because when I step outside of my comfort zone, I grow. And as yeah. I grow, I can share that with other people and hopefully have that ripple effect of positivity and inspiration that's lasting in the world uh, for others as well. Yeah. You mentioned one of my favorite quotes ever, the Thoreau quote, most men live lives of quiet desperation. I love that. Yeah. That's a love great that. fucking quote. And so damn true. I yeah. think you're right. I think you really need very difficult things in your life in order to appreciate real comfort and relaxation. Absolutely. I don't think you hit it. If you just, if you, your whole life is just soft cushions and everything's made out of allure and people are feeding you grapes, <laughs> I think you live like an asshole. Yeah. I think, that, I th I think you know, we don't like that because no one really, suffering is hard. 
It's hard. It feels uncomfortable. But you don't realize that unless you suffer, you don't appreciate calm. You don't appreciate peace. I think there's just far too many people out there seeking comfort. I agree with that. And I think that it's funny because people are going towards that. They're hedging against discomfort. Like, okay, how to make this as comfortable as possible? And then they sit there and they're like, why am I unsatisfied? Why am I not happy? And it's like, because you're hedging against discomfort, because you're trying to make, like you said. It's poor education, really. People are not educated on what it takes in order to be fulfilled in life. The, the idea is that material possessions or some modicum of success is the goal. It's not. You know, difficult tasks is what make you make do something that's hard to do. Do something that's interesting. Do something that's complicated and intricate. Do something that requires you to stretch your boundaries. Absolutely. So that's why I'm asking you because you're doing you're stretching your boundaries into some weird life, you know, death defying <laughs> sort of thing. You know, yeah. you've done two of these so far. Like, what is next? Are you going to do ultra marathons? You're going to try to climb mountains? Like, what are you going to do? So I know you got something going on. <laughs> I, uh, I I did a big mountaineering project before any of this, uh, for these last two projects. I did um, something called the Explorers Grand Slam. So I climbed the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents and went to the North and South Pole for the last degree of latitude, faster than anyone's done that. So I was 139 days back in 2016. So Everest, Denali, Kilimanjaro, et cetera, back to back. Um, the next actual physical project that I have, uh, it's not you know some you know world record-breaking thing or anything, but uh, my wife. Uh, so one of the things that we do, um, we have this nonprofit as I mentioned and love speaking to young people, kind of opening their minds to the outdoors and being stewards of the land and really um, inspiring young people to think about, you know, doing hard things and testing themselves. Uh, it doesn't have to be in the outdoors at all. It could be anything, music, art, culture, whatever it is, but to, to aim high in their life. And one question we started asking young people um, was this question, which is, what's your Everest? You know, it's a really obvious metaphor for kids. It's like, you know, what's mm-hmm. your big goal? You know, what, what is your Everest? Um, and kids are amazing. In a gymnasium, I get, you know, kids raising their hand going, you know, my Everest would be the first person in my family to graduate from college or, you know, whatever amazing things kids, you know, dream of um, and help facilitate them towards those goals. Um, but about a year ago now, uh, my wife, who's not, you know, didn't grow up, you know, climbing mountains, didn't grow up as, as an avid athlete or anything. She's been wildly supportive of the work we've done. And a lot of the book is really about our love story and building these projects together. But she looks at me and she goes, Colin, my Mount Everest is now to climb Mount Everest. And so, we are going back in April. I've climbed Mount Everest once before from the Nepalese side, but we're going to go back um, and climb Everest. We'll be there in April, May of this year. So in a couple of months uh, to climb Mount Everest from the north side. Um, and uh, for really for me, the that that's to be a, a support, support, a facilitator uh, of her goal. So the next thing I'm doing kind of in the athletic or outdoor space is actually to uh, support Jenna in uh, climbing literally her, her Mount Everest being Mount Everest. Um, and it's really cool to see her, you know, just someone so close to me commit to a goal it's an audacious goal for her for her back i mean she's amazing she's strong she's fit she's trained she's ready but like just like six months ago i never rode a boat you know a year ago yeah she's climbed some big mountains but to say hey i want to climb mount everest was a massive goal for her do you think you're going to do stuff together like do some death defying thing together (laughs) are you going to get her addicted to this shit now you know i think uh we'll see i think uh for her uh, this this uh i don't want to say it's one and done but i'm i'm sure that uh you know i don't think she has the huge desire to keep uh doing these types of things i think the next journey for both of us probably after that is a, a parenthood having well, kids j- yeah that's that's, that's a, a whole journey. other journey um ever seems 
very commercialized now, right? I, I watched some of the, yeah, the footage of the from the pictures and the stuff giant like that. Line of people trying to summit. It's yeah. it's a weird thing now, right? Yeah. So that's from the south side. That's the side that I climbed in 2016 from Nepal. That was that photograph was taken from that. What a wild and bizarre thing that was, um, to so say the strange. least. Traffic um, jam. Yeah. So on the north side, um, there's less crowds. What we be climbing from? Um, but also that day, I mean, look. That I don't have the answer to the problem. That certainly was a problematic thing that happened up there. It's kind of a weird, perfect storm a little bit where it was actually really stormy for a while and then people got delayed and the ropes were delayed getting in and all of a sudden yeah. there's one good day and everyone goes at the same time. So um, again, I don't know what the solution is, but everyone going up at the same time on the same day on one day in May is obviously clearly based on that picture, did like not the answer. Yeah, people did die that day. Um, I don't know the exact count, but people did die that day because they got you know stuck out there and couldn't move one With way the or the other. Jam. Yeah. yeah, when I was wow. climbing in 2016, um, it was actually a, a, a somewhat crowded day, nothing like that photo, but it was a, a more crowded day. And uh, I was climbing uh, with a Sherpa by the name of Pasang Bodhi, incredibly strong guy. When we summited together, it was his seventh time on the summit, just an absolute legend. Um, and him and I talked about it and we were behind all these people and we actually made the decision. You know, we, we taught, he said, you know, we got to weigh the kind of pros and cons here. If we stay behind people, you're moving as slow as the slowest person in this line. And it's just like, you've seen those photos. It's just not a great situation. It's, it's cold and you can get frostbite and all that kind of stuff. And so we actually made the choice to unclip um, from the ropes, the fixed rope there on the first half of the summit day, um, all the way up to a section called the balcony. We actually climbed unroped, but beside the people, because we actually made the call that we said, you know, actually climbing unroped of this section felt safer, you know, risking a slip or a bad fall with no ropes felt safer than being stuck behind some other people. Mm. And then eventually it did get too steep and too falling off. Um, yeah. yeah, that's a photo that uh, Nims Dai took. Um, that's a crazy picture but i never saw anything like that and that's i mean that's definitely the exception not the rule yeah, but um, on everest but that the fact that exists that is way. just horrible i mean there's horrible i have you know yeah. there's nothing good to say about that other than it's just uh it's tragic for sure <laughs> um so you know i think that uh Again, I don't know what the solution is. Um, I'm proud of Jenna for setting this goal. And, you know, I think that people should, you know, set that goal. I think people, if they if that's what they want to do, great. If they want to climb mountains, if they want to do anything, I don't want to stop people from doing that. But certainly a situation like that where people are stuck on ropes and dying in a situation where that shouldn't happen like that is uh, a terrible thing. So um, this book... The Impossible First, it's out now. People can go get it, right? Yeah, they it's out it. now. It came out a month ago. Are you going to um, write a book about your rowboat experience as well? Do you think I should? Why not? Fuck it. The book, it's also an audio book, so if you don't like reading and you like listening oh, instead, you? you got the audio book. I narrated it myself. Oh, that's good. Yeah, that's good. yeah, I narrated it myself. Uh, it's out. It came out a month ago. Just hit the New York Times bestsellers list. So, um, Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Well, congratulations. Um Don't die. <laughs> Come back again next time you do something else crazy. Uh, yeah, you we, got it, man. We talked about Good? No? Some, yeah. Jamie looked over at me like something's going on. <laughs> uh, so The Impossible First, it's out right now. Go get it, folks. Thanks, Colin. Yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. it. Thank Thanks you very man. much, man. Yeah. Thank you.